the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. That guy again? He whiz. <laughs> Good afternoon to you. Welcome. I hope you don't feel that way. I hope you're at least tolerant. If not adoring, no, no, no. You don't have to be adoring. Just tolerate me. That's all I ask. Good to have you with us. Welcome to another edition of Lifeline here in the Stead, Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m., addressing issues that impact your life and your world. Coming up a little bit later on in this evening's program, we're going to kind of break down for you some of the more controversial aspects of the heated budget debate on Capitol Hill, this whole multi-trillion dollar proposal, which ironically, the promise to fix infrastructure was actually a campaign promise, not of Joe Biden, but of Donald Trump. That never came to fruition. And if you drive down the 880 or the 101, you know it's true. And yet, looking at the amount of non-discretionary spending that's stuffed into this package, the so-called pork, oh my, my. And, uh, you know, it's always interesting when when Democrats are at the helm, uh, they have no problem spending, but the Republicans get upset, and then vice versa. When the Republicans are at the helm, the Democrats suddenly get very conservative when it comes to where money goes. At the end of the day, both probably spend equally, at least in terms of amounts, just in different places. But is the current budget proposal that not only includes trillions of dollars— in further indebtedness, but also proposals to increase taxes. And it's the old adage, well, just tax the rich. They can afford it. They can handle it. Jeff Bezos will bail us out of all of this. Uh, And maybe he can. I don't know. But here's what I can tell you, that the promise to tax the rich, um, well, that's just a portion of what they're looking to do. Unfortunately, part of the budget proposal for increased taxes doesn't differentiate between upper echelon rich and middle-class folk like you and me. And there's where the danger comes in. We're going to get details for you as to uh, where all of this stands and what it might look like in terms of the impact of your ability to save money for a house, an education, a retirement, uh, coming up later on in tonight's program. Right now, though, we lead off with the fact that just yesterday the U.S. Supreme Court held oral arguments in a couple of lawsuits challenging Senate Bill 8, the Texas abortion law, claimed by some to violate Roe v. Wade by banning abortions after six weeks. Although the uh, case challenges that abortion law, Roe itself was rarely mentioned. So what does all of this mean, and uh, what is the likelihood of seeing the high court uphold 
the law as it stands. Let's get some insights. Brian Johnston joins us, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, author of the new book, The Evil Twins, Roe and Doe, How the Supreme Court Unleashed Medical Killing. He is also the host of Life Matters, heard Saturday mornings at 11 here on KFAX. And uh, Brian, this is probably one of the most closely followed cases to come before the Supreme Court in a lot of years, particularly because of the potentiality here uh, to either encourage restrictions on abortion at will across the country or uh, unleash more horror. What is your sense in terms of the opening arguments and uh, where all this potentially might be headed? Well, Craig, you're exactly right. This has been one of the most stunning cases that the Supreme Court has taken up. And as you recall, we were all surprised when they decided to take it up because less than a month from today, they're taking up another case that's been on the docket, the Mississippi law that deals with abortions after 16 weeks. Now, the heartbeat aspect of this law is something they didn't even get near. It's significant. It's a significant part of this law, but what they were really after is a deeper issue. And first of all is the matter, as you pointed out, of private action. That is the right of a private individual to bring legal action. I'm so glad that KFAX and all the Salem Network is there because the popular media is not honest in how they analyze the courts and how they analyze decisions. As you know from my book, they're not honest about how they explain Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, the operant decision never discussed by the popular media. But in terms of this decision and what's at stake, what's often being said is, well, there's a bounty being offered. A bounty is going to be offered to go after abortionists, and that's a gross misrepresentation of the nature of civil law. That came up a little bit yesterday. Now, by the way, there's been many articles even today about the oral arguments and about the nature of the questions that were asked. It's very problematic in a a Supreme Court case to determine a judge's decision based solely on the nature of their questions. But there were some very interesting questions. First and foremost, the state of Texas was sued but no official in the state of Texas, because the state is not going to enforce it. And so the pro-aborts, Planned Parenthood and Company, they sued the clerks of the courts of the state of Texas. And basically prohibited, they're asking that the clerks review every case that's submitted to the desk and prohibit any SB-8, any abortion-related civil action. Now, again, the difference between the civil and criminal courts, criminal law requires the government to to prosecute. Civil court is where individuals bring an action because they have been harmed. And, again, the best distinction is the O.J. Simpson case. How did O.J. Simpson get off? Remember, if it does not fit, you must acquit. He was acquitted. And yet, as soon as there was a civil case brought, by the family of Nicole Brown Simpson, it was decided almost immediately. It didn't go a whole day. He was found guilty because that's a civil case, and that allows individuals to go to court. The significant thing now and the misrepresentation about civil action is that somehow everybody's going to be suing. 
Now, I want, as you know, Craig, I, I used to work for a law firm when I was a pup. Uh, in high school, in my first years of college, I would go down to the courthouse and I would file cases, get them stamped, present them to the clerk. They want the clerks now to not accept any bill, any filing from an individual that wants to sue an abortionist. And what that does is change, it's absurd. It's absurd because they don't have, usually you would sue the Attorney General because the Attorney General enforces criminal law. But this isn't a criminal law. And so they are elevating clerks to literally review what's being filed and decide, no, I'm not going to accept it. Yeah, there's, that's problematic, number one, because they, they, they neither have the authority nor the legal background to make such a decision. I mean, it, it's, it's almost def- by default suggesting that we're now going to, what, deputize a clerk to have equal authority with a judge who would normally right. decide standing and either accept or throw a case out. Wow. You, you nailed on the head. And here's the deeper issue people need to know. These courts, and this came up, thankfully, I was pleased. One, one judge says there are four billion <laughs> litigation actions in the United States every year. And in fact, the courts are clogged. There is, and if you've never heard this, you need to hear it, you can get sued for anything. You can be sued for anything. If your neighbor doesn't like you, they don't like the way your dog barks. That's a tort, and they'll bring you to court if they have a bad attitude. But here's the reality and what they misrepresent. This is not a bounty that's being sought. This is basically a civil payment. It's the civil penalty. And what happens is that right now under the law, every American has the right to go to court. It's called the open court system. You don't have to be someone special to have access to the judicial system. What this law does is it allows someone who's been harmed, and it could be anybody, but I think the most likely might be a husband or the father if they're not married. The father of that child has no say in the killing of that baby right now, no rights whatsoever. Now, if I was in that situation, that would be a pretty serious harm. As I said, the Nicole Brown Simpson family, they lost their daughter. They lost their sister to an action by O.J. Simpson, and they prevailed in court. What happens now in Texas under this, you must have standing, though. You or I could not sue O.J. Simpson because he killed Nicole Brown, but a family member has standing. A family member does have harms that came from that. And so this is not a bounty, and this is an absurd representation. You're going to read it every day now until this is resolved. The LA Times, the Chronicle, the standard media is that somehow there's bounty hunters out there. No. If your neighbor, if you have a bad neighbor, (laughs) hopefully you don't. If you have a bad neighbor who steals things from people's garages and steals uh, your lawnmower you have standing to say, I'm sorry, you stole my lawnmower. Your other neighbor doesn't have standing in that sense. But if your other neighbor wants to, they could also sue and say, I'm, I'm concerned, I'm alarmed. One of our neighbors is a thief. I can't even leave my house now. 
I can't trust my... So they could try to sue them. Your case is going to have a better standing because you have suffered a harm. And so what SB8 does is allows any individual that has suffered a harm by an abortionist to sue that abortionist because it is harmful. That is killing a human being. And obviously, we all are sorrowful over Nicole Brown Simpson's death, but that's standing. And that's why everyone is given the right to sue. But as was pointed out very briefly yesterday, it's the trial court that will determine the standing. So this talk about, oh, it's a bounty, oh, and, and radical pro-lifers will take down license plates of taxi drivers and, and will go after a bounty. No, that, there's no standing. They will not be granted standing by the local court. That's decided every day. It, throughout our nation, civil courts have to say, look, this case isn't going forward because you don't have standing to sue. And so that is what they're trying to misrepresent. I actually believe now, again, we're probably not going to hear the final result of this for a while, because the real question yesterday was, do the Justice Department and the, uh, the abortion advocates of Texas, do they even have the right to bring this case? Because it is a state law that has not yet gone through the state system, as we've talked about before. The purpose of the Supreme Court is not to handle everybody's grievance as soon as they have it. They have to go through the actual system. So that's the big question, whether or not they can even bring this case if there hasn't even been a state course a state court hearing on Yeah, they might likely come back and say it feels as if this is premature, this should go through the through the ranks, so to speak. Normally, cases, the trajectory is cases work their way up to the Supreme Court. To kind of skip over that and assume that you're going to get um, curry favor, um, probably not going to work in a scenario like this. And again, it would, it, would, it would wind up, as Brian Johnston points out, forcing the high court into sort of the, you know, the, the place to air all of your grievances for absolutely everything. And then, well, for what do we need lower courts? This is going to be a long and interesting case, to be sure, with some fascinating potential outcomes in many respects. We'll continue to follow it, as I know Brian Johnston will, on his own program, Life Matters. That's Saturday mornings at 11 here on KFAX. His new book, incidentally, The Evil Twins, Roe and Doe, How the Supreme Court Unleashed Medical Killing, really gives you some deep insight into the history of all of this, and in particular, understanding that goes well beyond what the mainstream media talks about. You always hear... Roe versus Wade. You never hear Doe versus Bolton. And to understand one and the other um, will really broaden uh, perhaps your, your not only understanding of uh, how we got into this mess, but the danger of it all. Because in the end, the implications of those decisions handed down in 1973, while typically couched in terms of impacting the lives of unborn children, really goes much broader and deeper than that. Brian Johnston, information on the web at californiaprolife.org. His program, Life Matters, Saturday mornings, 11, here on KFAX. Let's get a look at traffic. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. You'll hear it quite often whenever there's a proposal to try and close a budget gap, provide new giveaway goodies, be it under the guise of better education, free education, I don't know, infrastructure bills. Generally, at some point, inevitably... The conversation will come down to, well, we need to make the rich pay their fair share. And while there might be, at least on a psychological level, some uh, some uh, pleasure out of that notion, um, there is some stark reality to the current proposal related to this infrastructure bill that um, while including an aspect that would, quote-unquote, tax the rich, does a pretty lousy job at defining who the rich are. And when you talk about capital gains, you know, it, it sounds as if, well, they've gained all of this money, therefore let us tax them, not realizing that it really isn't a gain on income like you get a paycheck from your job every two weeks. Neither is it strictly relegated to the quote-unquote rich, that in fact, if you have an account with a brokerage house, you're just trying to save money for your child's education or buy a house or save additional money for retirement, whatever it might be, uh, realize that the rich that they are proposing be taxed their quote-unquote fair share, yeah, you'd, you'd be in that list. You say, wait a minute, Craig, you've got to be kidding me. I, I'm the farthest thing from the definition of rich. Well, my only response to that is uh, tell it to the Democrats. Bob Zadek joins us, nationally syndicated talk show host. He is the host of the longest-running libertarian talk show in the country, heard locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area on 860 AM, The Answer. He is also a celebrated book author, and uh, we'll tell you more about how you can find out more about what Bob does in a moment. Meanwhile, as always, we're pleased to have join us on the program, Mr. Bob Zadek. Bob, how are you? Uh, very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show, Craig. I yeah. always appreciate it. Whenever I hear the uh, the term tax the rich, uh, you know, beyond the fact that it seems to be a convenient rallying cry for <laughs> mobs that are carrying pitchforks and uh, and torches, I, I also always wonder why it is that when they say tax the rich, they don't really define who it is that they qualify as rich. In this particular case, the notion of an increased capital gains tax really really comes down to, uh, well, I, I guess in some respects, a, a great big bait and switch here, doesn't it? It does, Craig. And, and what's really strange is even the concept of rich, if, if you just drill down a tiny bit, a tiny bit from the headline or the emotion-laden concept of the rich, you will find yourself, if, if most people would, in having a rational conversation, they would end up being tied in knots. For example, to give you one example of how strange this concept of the rich is, uh, let us assume somebody has lots of money. Now, what's wrong with... Now, if you own money... Um, if you have it, have access to it, having access to it as an abstraction is meaningless. You're still waking up in the morning, taking a shower, shaving, and going about your life. So money, merely owning it, is irrelevant. It's what it is, what you can get from it. 
Now, what do you get for money? Either you get the pleasures of consumption, you get to buy nice things and live in nice places and travel in nice vehicles and airplanes. You consume things that are more pleasurable than most other people, or the money has another use. It can make you more money. Now, if, if somebody, the super rich, most of their wealth is not used in consumption, you only, it's exhausting to spend that much money. You couldn't do it. You would just be lying on the floor tired from trying to spend all the money. So you can't possibly spend it. So therefore, what do you do? You use the money, either you give it away to other people, or you use it to make more money by making investments. Now, therefore, a substantial utilitarian value of money is it generates more money. So that means if you're wealthy, you have the ability to generate more money. Well, what about somebody who has an extraordinary talent, whether it's in performing arts or in athletics, or they're bigger and stronger, and they, or they're smarter, and they have inherent qualities that enable them to make infinitely more money than you and I. They don't have the wealth yet, but they have everything they need to acquire wealth, to generate wealth, are those personal qualities that you have, that ability inherent in you to earn money, isn't that as valuable as money itself? And should that be taxed? So what exactly troubles us about people having a lot of wealth? Is it that they have power? Well, they don't have to have the power uh, because power, money itself is not power. It's only if you use it for bad purposes, you acquire power. Is it consumption? No, because very wealthy people don't necessarily consume more. They might. Uh, Warren Buffett is not a, drives an old car, lives in a modest house. He doesn't, he's not a consumer, but he's one of the wealthiest men on earth until he gave away most of his money. So I don't understand in the first instance, what is our problem with having people having a lot of wealth so long as they acquired it honestly? I don't understand why being wealthy itself is somehow makes you a target. What's wrong with people having money? And we seem to want to tax it only because we can. So we start with the proposition, Greg, and let's maybe we'll spend a few minutes on it on the show, is that if you and I, if our listeners were designing a tax policy, and the assignment is make a tax policy that is the best for the country, a policy that does the most good for the country, what would it look like and why? Putting it another way, what should the goal be of any tax policy? Should it be to transfer as much wealth as you can from the private sector to the government for it to spend? Or is the goal something else? So if we talk about policy, Craig, we have to first talk about what are the goals of tax policy and then how we achieve it. And remember, 
if the goal, if the result of tax policy is to harm the economy, that means we are in a death spiral. So we cannot harm the economy. So if we start with, or if your audience starts with that point, then the conversation is both interesting and constructive about tax policy. But merely targeting the rich because they happen to have the money without regard to the consequences doesn't make much sense to me. Well, and not only is that a dangerous down road down which to head, the other problem, and you alluded to this, Bob, a moment ago, and that is that, you know, we, we, we tend to have very fluid definitions of what rich compromises. I mean, certainly to somebody like uh, you or me, uh, Jeff Bezos is rich. However, when you drove to work today, you might have run across a homeless individual who doesn't even have enough to be able to afford a mortgage, let alone rent an apartment. Um, while, yes, Bezos's income would be in the stratosphere compared to them, they would look at you or I and say, that person is rich. So this is a very fluid definition, and the problem is when it gets tossed out there, everybody has a different idea as to who it is that the rich are and why they deserve to be taxed so much, not recognizing that it isn't in the, the propaganda that we ought to define the potential impact of a bill or a proposal in this case, but rather to look in the fine print. When you read the fine print, as in this case, you suddenly, shockingly, may come to the conclusion that the rich people that they're thinking of taxing, yeah, that includes you and me. We'll get to more of our conversation. Bob Zadek is with us tonight. He, of course, is a syndicated talk show host, best-selling author, details on the web about his weekly program at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. We'll take a time out, come back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We've asked syndicated talk show host and author Bob Zadek to join us tonight to kind of um, peel back the curtain on what is nothing short of a bit of uh, economic or financial uh, sleight of hand here by the current proposal that includes a quote-unquote tax the rich to help pay for some of the um, infrastructure spending, which basically amounts to a increase in taxes related to capital gains. But there's there's some definitions here that people need to be familiar with because you hear capital gains and you think, yeah, people making big money. Well, this is not only an issue of how do we define the rich, as we alluded to before the break, but also perhaps the need to define exactly what we mean by gains or the difference between Cap- realized capital gains and regular income. Bob Zeta can help us understand. Uh, Bob, first, I, I, I'm, I'm curious, your thoughts on this notion that, that quite often the, the definition of who the rich are tends to be a, a very sliding defin- definition, doesn't it? Of course it does. And the whole concept of capital gains, which you focused on a second ago in your introduction of the topic, even that is a score it requires really a lot of thought uh, as follows capital gains are a very technical definition but quite simply a capital gain is when something you own appreciates in value it is a capital asset is something you own when it appreciates in value that is a capital gain which is profit 
from the increase in value of something as opposed to profit from actual the activity of working. And capital gains uh, is important um, to understand because, first of all, capital itself, money that you use to buy something, that money has already been taxed. When you got it, you earned it, and you pay taxes when you earned it, which means the capital you're left with is the money after you. that capital was taxed once. It was taxed when you earned it. So capital gains itself is double taxation. It's taxation on money that was taxed when you earned it. Now it's taxed again uh, when the money produces an asset that increases in value. But more to the point, more to the point, the question for one that one has to ask is if you own something and it goes up in value, think your home, your home goes up in value, you don't sell it, your home is worth more. That's like theoretical. You don't live better because your home went up in value. You aren't any different. You simply own something that somebody else is willing to pay you to buy more than you paid for it. But you're not any richer. You don't have any more money. You simply have the ability to get money if and when you sell that asset. So is that income as a listener as you and I would normally think of it. Well, the law has always said, no, that's not income. It's the possibility of earning income, but it's not income. Take another example to put it into a different context. Let us assume you you are a skilled artist. You can draw or paint or sculpt something that has value. Now, you are, your hands have great value. They can produce wealth. They can produce something that you can sell. But are we going to tax your hands? Your hands are simply uh, the potential for earning money, but it's not money itself. Putting it another way, the way some economists put it, is when you, you think of a tree that produces fruit, that you can sell. Now, is it appropriate to, is it good policy to live off the tree, to live off the branches of the tree the year after year, use the tree for firewood or the like? Because every time you do, what's left produces less fruit. Or is it better economic policy to don't touch the tree, let the tree continue to produce fruit, and you sell the fruit, the produce, all the while the tree is growing, and you live off the produce. And you adjust your lifestyle to the fruit the tree produces, but do not harm the tree, because that's the source of the income. Well, if you tax, if you take stocks, which is a typical example, that let's say a wealthy or an upper middle class person owns, if they own stocks, that stock is producing wealth, which either gets spent or reinvested in the economy, and the economy grows. But if you start to tax 
unrealized gains, then how does the owner of those stocks pay the tax? After all, it didn't sell the stock. It didn't realize the gain. So when it gets a tax bill, how does it pay the bill? Well, it has to sell the stock, which means the stock, which is producing the wealth, continues to decline. And does that make economic sense? Because the collective um, capital assets of society to decline. Pretty soon, we're going to stop producing money. It makes no economic sense. It is bad for the country. So the whole concept of taxing unrealized gains is utter heresy. It makes no sense. And one more example, Craig, because it always comes up when economists discuss it. Think of family farmers. The biggest asset they have is the farm. Farms, like most land, usually appreciates in value. If a family owns a farm which appreciates in value, they still have the same farm, the same several thousand acres or whatever it is, but now they get a tax bill because their farm is worth more. How do they pay the bill? They have to sell off part of their farm. So you're going to force people to sell assets, to pay bills on gains they didn't realize. The other alternative is these farmers borrow against the farmland. In other words, you're forcing them to go into debt when they haven't generated any cash to pay the taxes. It simply makes no sense. Well, and to put this into terms that listeners can relate to, when we talk about capital gains in relationship to, say, real estate, anybody who owns a home in the Bay Area, unless you've really done something odd, uh, you've likely seen a 5, 10, 15, maybe even 20% per year realized uh, uh, increase in value to your property through appreciation. Same thing happens when you see somebody who's invested in a fund that's making the money for their child's education or for a home someday, whatever it might be. You've got the money sitting there. It's growing as you have wisely invested. The difference is that the capital gains on that, that gain in the money, uh, the cash sitting there in your investment account, that, that gets taxed whether you take a nickel out or not. If every year the tax man came to you and said, gee, Mr. Roberts, we see that your home has gone up 20% in value, you need to write us a check. Now, wait a minute now. I, 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 it, it may be there, but it's only on paper. I, I don't have that cash. Why are you asking me to pay a tax on it? Yeah, that's exactly my point. Bob Zadig is with us today, syndicated talk show host, author of a number of best-selling books. Details, by the way, about Bob's work online at bobzadek.com. You'll find information about his books, recent guests on his program, notes on programs, podcasts. It's a, a treasure trove of great information. If you're somebody who likes to study, understand, kind of get the story behind the story, deeper than what uh, even the talking heads will uh, will provide you, then his program is one you must tune in for. Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. locally in the San Francisco Bay Area on 860 a.m. The Answer. Bob Zadek at Bob Zadek, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K dot com. A timeout back to more of our conversation with Bob Zadek. We talk about you and your money. You rich scoundrels, you. His lifeline continues. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back with Bob Zadek. His program, by the way, you can catch him Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock here in the San Francisco Bay region on 860 AM, The Answer, and more details, too, about his good work online at bobzadek.com. We've been talking about the um, Democrat proposal not only for this big infrastructure bill, but the question that Congress rarely asks itself, and that is, where is the money coming from? And, of course, the answer here is from the rich people, of course. But who are these rich people? And when we talk about when we talk about capital gains taxation, it it gets a bit complicated because, unfortunately, uh, that is a net that snares an awful lot of people, many of whom would never in their wildest dreams define themselves as rich and yet equally getting caught up in all of this. And and, and beyond the fact that this is is certainly problematic, uh, doesn't this also raise investment questions, Bob, and, and, and by that I mean when investors look at where they put their money, uh, when a country like the United States says, okay, we're going to punish you for putting your money to work, um, isn't there an increased temptation to therefore do more of that investing in, shall we say, more tax-friendly nations and therefore ultimately having a very dilatorious impact on the revenue stream for the United States Treasury Department? Oh, of course there is, Craig. You're exactly right. And no one knows that better than uh, that misguided um, uh, Federal Reserve leader, Janet Yellen, who has been campaigning, and with some success, I'm afraid to say, uh, in getting a worldwide minimum corporate tax of 15% so that other countries don't have lower tax rates and poach our corporations. That's a scandalous, I mean, it's terrible for the world. It basically says to businesses, you have nowhere to hide other than Mars or Pluto um, if you earn money because we got you because every country is going to tax you at the same rate or the same minimum rate. Uh, and there's another important concept, Craig, uh, that I hope our friends out there will understand. And that is that uh, wealth, which seeks to earn more money, uh, wealth is uh, what produces innovation. Uh, people will, only, will take a portion of their wealth and will risk it in a risky venture because high risk but yet high return. Well, you don't risk your rent money, you don't risk your food money, you risk your investment capital. And if you, through taxation, deplete the collective amount of investment capital there is in the world, you therefore automatically deplete the amount of capital available to take a chance on an innovation, such as an Apple computer. Uh, such as an iPhone, such as the electric light bulb, which Edison persuaded investors to trust him with to invent. So all of the innovation disappears. And if you understand that when we're talking about startup companies, companies that invent product that make our lives so much better, those startup companies generally uh, understand that nine out of ten innovations, startups, fail, which means the one that doesn't fail better produce so much 
revenue to compensate for the nine failures, just like drug companies who are experimenting with drugs. Most drugs fail, but when they get the blockbuster, it pays for all the others, and we are healthier. So we want people to invest in risky products because sooner or later, they hit a home run whether it's the iPhone or Amazon or whatever. Well, if you take away that risky capital, the capital that's available for innovation, you reduce the likelihood of innovation. If you tax that capital, now somebody better hit a home run in one out of six rather than one out of 10, which means four possible innovations don't even get off the ground. So it is horrible for the country because it stifles innovation. And remember, the more you tax something, the less you have of it. Whether you're taxing alcohol consumption, cigarette consumption, or taxing investing, whatever you tax, you end up with less of it. And we don't want less investing going on in innovative startup companies. Absolutely not. And moreover, and this is an important point that I want to stress for everyone listening, that, you know, while this is couched in terms of tax the rich, um, be mindful that we're talking about monies that are post-tax dollars to begin with, meaning from whatever the source was, you earned that money, you paid income taxes on it. Now you invest those dollars because you want to grow that nest egg as a means of saving to buy a home putting a child through college or university, supplemental to your retirement savings related to maybe a companion, IRA, or a 401k. And you look at this and say, wait a minute, <laughs> they want to take my post-tax dollars and the earnings that I, that I gain from that, that I don't even realize the income directly. In other words, you're not taking the cash. You're just seeing the cash accumulate through interest on paper and then rolls the IRS and says, yeah, we want our share of that. They say, well, what happens when you go to sell that investment and it's worth less? Well, now you've got a loss. Part of that can be realized against your uh, your income taxes. But there are limitations to that, too. And only so much per annum can be written off. If you have a, a high loss year, uh, it's going to be a long time for you realizing the benefit of the tax deduction of those losses. So they essentially catch you coming and going. So if you're somebody that has such an account, you don't consider yourself rich, and you're just trying to care for your family – be mindful that according to this proposal, oh, yeah, you're definitely rich. may not have the money to pay it, but you're rich, at least in their eyes. Bob Zadek, the host of The Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock, 860 a.m. The Answer, our Bay Area sister station. Details again on the web at bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. Always an education to have Bob join us, so uh, tune in. You'll be educated, too, Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more as Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.